from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our first lesson this morning comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. Hear now God's word for you and for me on this holy day. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces, and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading this morning comes from Mark's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This, too, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, we ask that you would meet us in this word, in this old, old story about promise, about hope, about new life. Because we need such things in our lives. We all enter this space, Lord, from different angles, but we know that you can meet us. And so we would be bold in praying for such a thing, 
that you through this word proclaimed would speak to each and every heart and that you would remind us of what this day is all about. We pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Eight words. Eight words. He has been raised. He is not here. Eight unassuming, matter-of-fact, straightforward words that changed the course of human history. He has been raised. He is not here. Eight words. Eight words that declare victory in Jesus Christ over the principalities and powers of death. Eight words that ground the radical claim that nothing, not even death itself, can separate us from God's love. Eight words that have had the power to change the course of history because they have the power to change human lives. Eight words. Eight words that invite us to see that the Easter victory of God can actually be our victory. The resurrection of Jesus Christ can be our resurrection. And so today I want to reflect on these eight words. More specifically, I want to reflect on the victory that they guarantee, the victory of God in Jesus Christ. And I want to reflect on what that means for us in our time, in our faith, and in our life how the victory of God impacts us, and how when we claim God's victory, we can claim victory over a meaningless existence, how when we claim God's victory, we can claim victory over the impossible, and how when we claim God's victory, we can claim victory over the fear of death. So when God's victory becomes our victory, we actually become champions over meaninglessness. We, come, we become victors over a meaningless existence. You see, human beings, as you know, are in the meaning-making business. We love to make meaning. We love to discover purpose. We yearn for it. We desire it. And yet, for many of us, no matter our age or stage of life, meaning and purpose can oftentimes be elusive. 20th century philosopher Albert Camus argued that to seek such a purpose or to quest for such meaning is actually absurd because life, he said, is absurd. He said that there is no coherence. There is no center that holds. When we cry out to the universe and plead for it to give us meaning, to give us a little bit of clarity of what we're here for, he says, we actually hear nothing back. The universe is silent. He actually compares our existence to the mythical figure Sisyphus. Sisyphus wanted to liberate human beings from death. And so he chained death itself. He chained the figure Hades, bound him up so that no human would ever have to die again. But Hades broke free. Death broke free of its chains. 
And when it came time for Sisyphus to die, he actually deceived death. He escaped it and he fled the underworld. And this deceit angered the gods because death ought to be inevitable. Death should be something they thought no one should escape. Death comes to us all. In fact, Camus said it himself that death is the philosopher's only problem. So as a punishment for his deceit, the gods sentence Sisyphus to an eternity of pushing a rock up a hill. And when he would reach the top, the rock would roll back down the hill and he would start the task and journey all over again. And this would be his punishment. This would be his eternity. Pushing the rock up only to have it fall back down and doing it over and over and over again. Camus said that this is a perfect metaphor for human existence. Meaningless, repetitive, pointless living. Roll the stone up and it rolls back down. Roll the stone up and it rolls back down over and over and over again. I do not believe it's a stretch to suggest that some of us at times have felt like Sisyphus. Some of us have been in the throes of that pointless kind of living, in that meaninglessness. Some of us have cried out to the universe. We've pleaded for purpose. We've cried out to discover meaning in our lives and in the life of this world, only to hear nothing back. There's some of us even now, I do not believe this is a stretch. There's some of us within the sound of my voice who feel a deep and abiding void of meaning and purpose in your own life right now. And if that is the case, if you are showing up today holding that burden, let me first suggest to you that I think Camus was wrong. I think he was wrong. Meaninglessness is not inevitable. The victory of God in Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead is a victory of meaning. For in the Easter story, the, the stone doesn't fall back down the hill and reseal the tomb. No, the, the stone has been rolled away forever. The possibility of purpose actually comes to life as Jesus steps out of the grave. The mundane and the inevitable and the pointless is interrupted. He is not here. He has been raised. Our meaning and our purpose, friends, as Christians, is, is fundamentally and foundationally rooted in Christ's aliveness. He is alive. And he brings us to life. It's a life that is animated by his love and his grace for the sake of love and for the sake of grace. It animates us to be for one another, 
to belong to one another, to be community, and to practice faith and life together. I love how the scripture puts it, in him we live and move and have our being, which I believe is another way of saying, in him we live and move and have our purpose. We have our meaning. Life is infused with meaning, the Christian believes, when we are fused to the resurrected Christ. Friends, when God's victory is our victory, not only do we become champions over a meaningless existence, we also can claim victory over the impossible. Many of us uh, found ourselves lending some of our attention uh, to the ever given these past few weeks, a massive container ship that, that ran aground and blocked a good portion of the Suez Canal. The ship is over 1,300 feet long. It weighs 200,000 tons and can carry a maximum cargo of 20,000 containers. In other words, it's massive. And when this massive vessel became stuck, passage through the canal came to an absolute standstill, costing commerce about 14, 15 million dollars a day. After deploying 14 tugboats and a whole bunch of backhoes digging in the dirt, they were only able to move the ship about 30 degrees in either direction. The photos and the videos, and maybe you have seen them, are somewhat comical. These tiny machines and these boats looked ridiculous in the shadow of the ever given as they worked to free this massive vessel. To be sure, it seemed as if this task was absolutely impossible, that all of their efforts were fruitless. The ship could not be freed. That is until something happened, something that was totally outside of their control, something that was otherworldly, something that some in the insurance business might call an act of God. You see, it was a, a full moon, a full moon that actually aided the liberation of the ever given. The Washington Post described nature's little assist in the rescue with these words. Tides are higher whenever there is a full or new moon, which occurs when the moon is in direct alignment with the sun, with either the earth or moon in the middle of the three. This causes a greater gravitational pull on the earth. As a result, high tides are higher and low tides are lower. This time, the effect was amplified by the first supermoon of the year, when a full moon coincides with the closest point to Earth in its elliptical orbit. You see, friends, without this cosmic, cyclical intervention, the ever-given may still be stuck on this Easter Sunday. Liberation seemed impossible without this lunar intercession. Now, I also believe it's not a stretch to say that some of us show up today feeling very much like that vessel, that we resonate with the ever given. We're carrying a huge load, a huge burden, and we have run aground. We are stuck. 
Perhaps we're stuck in sin. Perhaps we're stuck in apathy. Perhaps we're stuck in rigidness. Perhaps we're stuck in hatred or bigotry or bitterness or rage. Perhaps we're stuck in addictions and old patterns. Perhaps we're stuck in old stories that we will not let go. Perhaps we're stuck in discontinuity or disconnectedness. Perhaps we're stuck in trauma or tragedy. And we, let's be honest, we have great resources at our disposal and we've deployed what is available to us. We've organized all our tugboats and our backhoes, but alas, they have not freed us. And there are times when our liberation seems impossible that we're gonna stay stuck forever. And many of us have come to the place over time where we're finally ready to admit that our efforts simply won't cut it. That our work and our energy and our best intentions sometimes are not enough. The backhoes and the tugboats just won't do the job. That we actually need a supernatural intervention. And the good news of Easter Sunday, friends, is that, that our God is a God who does the supernatural. Our God is a God who intervenes, and our God is a God who still does the impossible. Our God is still rolling stones away. Our God is still healing the sick. Our God is still on the move. The victory of God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a testimony to victory over the impossible. And Easter people actually are audacious enough to believe that God can get us unstuck. Easter people make room for miracles. Easter people believe that, that hearts can actually change, that relationships can actually be mended and reconciled, that, that forgiveness can come and forgiveness can be offered. Easter people believe that justice and mercy can be the order of the day. Easter people believe that a new day is coming. Easter people believe that scales can fall from our eyes and the dead can be raised to new life. That we can be raised to new life. Friends, when the victory of God becomes our victory, we claim victory over meaninglessness and we claim victory over the impossible. Finally, when the victory of God becomes our victory, we claim victory over the fear of death and over death itself. I wanna offer a moment of transparency, a moment of honesty from my inner life. During the past 12 months, I have been anxious about my own death. And it's not about the pandemic, although that hasn't helped. It's actually about turning 46 years old. You see, my father, his name was Norman Sundermeyer, died of mesothelioma, lung cancer, caused by asbestos and asbestosis. He died when he was 46 years old. I turned 45 on the unofficial day the pandemic started. 
March 13th, 2020. And over the past 12 months, I have had anxiety about my own death. I have thought about it often. I've processed it with my wife and with some close confidants as I've navigated these thoughts and, and these feelings. And during this past year, I've often not only thought about my own death, but I've also thought about how death might really just be the end. That there is no life after death, that there is no heaven to be gained or hell to be feared, as Nietzsche once wrote. That death was just simply the end. There have been moments of extreme doubt for me, even as I have desperately held to the faith I've professed for as long as I can remember. My dad lived to be 46 years old, and I have often thought this past year, will that be my plight? Will this be my last birthday? Will I only get 46 years like my dad? And I was consumed by these questions. I've had a real fear and a real anxiety around them. And there were times over the past 12 months where I've, I've woken up in the middle of the night with my heart racing, believing that I was going to die in that very moment. There were moments when I was convinced a simple headache was the sign of a brain tumor and a, and a lower back strain was a return of my kidney cancer. And while, while I wasn't paralyzed by these thoughts, while life and work and ministry and relationships kept moving forward and I kept moving forward, I still found myself often mired in the fear of my own demise and burdened by this acute awareness of my own mortality. Well, a week before my 46th birthday, I was in the home of one of our faithful members, a woman by the name of Del Reardon. And many of you here in the sanctuary and participating online know who Del is. Del was a saint of this church. She'd been serving on session as an active elder. She was a Stephen minister. She was involved in the arts ministry and had many ministries outside of this church. Her life and her faith were vibrant. I describe her as a real Christian, someone you sense the presence of Christ in when you were with them. She was a light in this church, a blessing and a gift. In January, Dell was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer and she chose to come home on hospice. And I was visiting her about a week before she died and her ability to communicate was severely limited at that point and, and, and she was sleeping most of the day. I sat down next to her in her chair and, and told her I was by her side and, and she barely opened her eyes, but it was enough that I know she was acknowledging my presence. I held her hand and I began to, to stroke it. And after a few moments of silence, I asked Del, are you afraid? Are you afraid? And in a soft, subtle, but strong whisper, she said, no, I'm not afraid. Then I said, Del, are you ready? And she said, yes, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. 
I'm ready. And she mumbled, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready, over and over and over again. It was a testimony to her faith. It was witness to one of our core confessions that in life and in death, we belong to God and nothing will ever change that. She wasn't afraid to die and there was power in her words. I mean real power. The kind of power you cannot ignore. It was a power that came over me with force and in that single moment, in that single solitary moment as I Listen to her words, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. The burdens, I tell you, church, I had carried for the previous year had lifted on the spot. All the fear, all the anxiety about turning 46, about my own mortality, about my own death, all of it disintegrated in that moment in the presence of this faithful woman. It just fell away. And I sat with her in amazement that this burden had been lifted, holding her hand. And we sat in silence for another 10 min minutes. And we kept that silence. And I'd like to think that we were keeping the faith together. Dell died a day before my 46th birthday. And the gift that she gave me will not too soon be forgotten. He has been raised. He is not here. Eight words. Eight words that signify victory over a meaningless existence. Eight words that signify victory over the impossible. Eight words that signify victory over the fear of death and death itself. Easter people, the victory of God in Jesus Christ is our victory. He has been raised. He is not here. Make this victory your victory for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world. Hallelujah. Amen.